Amen. Amen. Well, what a blessing it is to gather together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to say before we dive into our scripture this morning in Revelation 21, I just wanted to say yet again, I can't say it enough, how much I absolutely adore our church family. I was thinking back about this week and just the reality of uh, phone call after phone call of difficulty going on. There were health issues that uh, some of you called about for prayer. There were some uh, home issues. There was there's just a lot of trials, a lot of struggles, a lot of difficulty. And our church rallies together around those moments, prays for each other, loves each other, is concerned and cares about each other. And I saw that on display this last week. I love seeing the love that we have for one another. I also love the reality of just kind of what took place last Sunday, even the last two Sundays. Uh, we, we spent our last week in Revelation 20 looking at the Great White Throne Judgment, one of the heavier sermons that I've ever preached. And there, there was no one who came up with a critique to say, uh, that's not something we need to hear, or that's too much judgment, or anything like that. I know that when we open the Word of God, we open it together as hungry people wanting God to speak to us, and not changing His comments, not sugarcoating what's going on. And then last Sunday, I, I felt like once we finished, and I prayed, and we all left, I felt like I instantly needed to apologize, because number one, the sermon was over an hour long. Number two, it was just filled with content. It was just so much information. Sergio said, hey, how did you feel the sermon went? How was the service? I said, the service was great. The sermon was just so much information. And again, I don't get any critiques. Maybe those of you who have them are just, you know, holding them and talking amongst yourselves. But, but more than just a, a sense of, well, that was a sermon. It, there was a reality to your hearts are encouraged by the Word of God. You love the Word of God. You're hungry for the Word of God. I had several of you, to my shock last week, come up and say that was one of the more impactful sermons and just be encouraged by all of that content. And uh, there were a couple comments that just stood out to me of never really understanding what heaven's going to be like, but now seeing it in the text, that you're able to visualize it, you're able to long for it, you know what it's all about and why you want to be there so I, I just, I praise the Lord for you. I praise the Lord for the privilege, every chance that we get to open the word of God together. We are a hungry people. We are a needy people. We are a broken people. And we get to come together on the same level ground at the foot of the cross and enjoy the word of God. So with that being said, if you have your copy of God's word, Revelation 21 is where we're going to be this morning. We are going to be looking at verses 9 through 21. And I want to let Jonathan Edwards introduce this text for us this morning. Jonathan Edwards, you know him. He's an American preacher from the 1700s. He, brilliant, brilliant theologian, probably one of the smartest, brightest theological minds ever on American soil. He graduated uh, as valedictorian from Yale, and he gave his valedictorian speech in Latin just to, just to show how much of a boss he actually was. The very first sermon that he ever preached was as an 18-year-old at a church in New York, and his subject was heaven. And he began the sermon with an apology that I believe is fitting for our text and our sermon this morning. He said, quote, To pretend to describe the excellence, the greatness, 
or the duration of the happiness of heaven by the most artful composition of words would be but to darken and cloud it. To talk of raptures and ecstasies, joy and singing is but to set forth very low shadows of the reality. And all we can by our best rhetoric is really and truly vastly below what is the bare and naked truth. To rephrase that in our own words, Jonathan Edwards is saying, I want to talk to you this morning about heaven, but literally just by putting words on heaven, putting words to the glories of heaven will diminish it. There's no way to properly express the glory and the joys of heaven. There are things that can be known about heaven in the scriptures, but there are so many question marks that we have about heaven, so many things that we don't know. In fact, in the Bible, we see people that went to heaven, whether it's Paul who was caught up to the third heaven, and then he came back and God said, don't tell anybody what you saw. Or whether it's Lazarus, right? Lazarus dies, he's raised from the dead four days later, and we don't get one drop of ink spilled about what Lazarus saw, what he encountered, what he experienced. There are so many questions that we have about heaven. And when we come to a text like this, we begin to see and savor the beauty of heaven, but we have to start with the apology that no matter what is said here this morning, it will not be as good as what will actually be experienced on that day in heaven. It's so tragic that so many people, many believers, live their lives for only the here and now. And I think that's because they don't know of the glory of heaven. Many people think heaven will be boring, and I think this morning these verses, the text that we're going to study, will show us four brilliant, beautiful, glorious aspects about heaven. And I think as we see them and as we understand them rightly, we'll realize not only that heaven won't be boring, but it will be beautiful beyond our wildest imaginations, more glorious beyond anything we could have ever comprehended in this life. So, Let's read what John writes in Revelation 21, verse 9, down to verse 21. Then one of the angels, the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a, a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Then there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west, and all the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who had spoken with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out in a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width are equal and its height is equal. He measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper, the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper. 
The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysoprase. The eleventh, jacinth. The twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the city, the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. As we read these words, if there was ever a time that we need God's help to understand them and to see them in our mind's eye, it's now. So let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we come before you. We long to be given a vision that's straight from your text, not in some dream or vision uh, way of seeing something that's outside of it, but to see clearly as we meditate on these verses, to see in our mind's eye what this new Jerusalem looks like and why it looks that way. God, we need your help. We need you to open our eyes because our brains can comprehend these words, but our hearts will not be enraptured by the beauty of these words if it isn't for your spirit. So we pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to truly see, to truly behold wonderful things from your law, that we would walk away changed, knowing what heaven looks like, but knowing why it looks like that. God, make us long to be there. Even in these moments as we're discussing, as we're dialoguing, as we're staring at your word and interacting with it and letting you address our hearts this morning, God, please make us long to be home. And make us long to be home, not because of the beauty of that home, not merely because of the things that we're seeing here, but why they are so glorious, namely the Lamb himself who is the glory of the new Jerusalem. Speak to us now through your word. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This morning, as we come to this text, I want us to see four different aspects of the glory of the New Jerusalem. We began last week by introducing what the New Jerusalem is, what it's going to be like. But now this morning, John will take us into the depths of these four different beautiful aspects of the glory of the New Jerusalem. Number one, let's look at the glory of the city itself. The glory of the city itself. This is verses 9 through 11. The glory of the New Jerusalem as the city itself. Verse 9 begins, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me. So we're not expecting to hear good news when this angel is introduced that way. This is the guy who said the last plague with the last bowl, here's what it is, and he poured out God's wrath on the world. This is the same angel. So we're not expecting this to be good news. I think that there's a reason for that. There's a beautiful reason why this angel is given the task to tell John what the new Jerusalem looks like. Number one, I think it's a beautiful picture of redemption. The wrath of God has been poured out in its completion, and therefore this angel has no more bad news to declare. He only has good news. The wrath of God is done, so therefore he has only good news to share. I think more textually, it's fitting to see this angel. If you go back to Revelation chapter 17, we saw this angel in verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So the first time we're introduced to this angel, he's showing us the judgment of Babylon. And if you look down in verse 3, he carries me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw this woman, this harlot, the great harlot Babylon. So 
This angel had shown John uh, taking him in the spirit to see Babylon, to see the antithesis of the new Jerusalem. So here, if you go back over to chapter 21, in chapter 21, John is going to be shown by the exact same angel in a beautiful contrast, not the city of Babylon, the great harlot, but rather the bride, the new Jerusalem, the city adorned for God. Even the locations of where they see these two different cities is beautifully contrasted. Babylon, in verse 3 of chapter 17, the angel took John to the wilderness, to a deserted location. But here you can see, verse 10, the angel carries John away in the spirit to a great and high mountain to see the holy city. So a wilderness, a desert to see Babylon, a great and high mountain to see the holy city. And as we said last week, the holy city is also a people. The people are its city. The city is a real city. There are some who would take this to mean that the city isn't a real, actual place, but it's only a people. I think that the people are in the city, but I believe that it's an actual, literal, real city with real dimensions, with real gems, with real stones. And the angel says, end of verse 9, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The new Jerusalem is a literal city, but the bride, the wife of the Lamb, inhabits that city such that the city takes on the characteristics of its people. You know that. We live in Los Angeles, and it's called the, the city of stars. Why? It's not because stars from the heavens are here, but Hollywood stars live here, so it's the city of stars. The people, the inhabitants, and their characteristics characterize the city. So, too, the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem are the saints of the Lord. They are the bride of Christ. And so as this city descends to earth from heaven, from God, this angel says, look, this is the New Jerusalem, and look, this is the bride of Christ, one and the same. There's a question mark as to where this city resides. Two main views. Either we have the new heavens above, the new earth below, and the new Jerusalem just hanging, suspended in between both of them. It's kind of in the middle. Uh, and then the, another view would be it actually descends all the way down to touch onto the earth, and it is in Jerusalem. Uh, there's no clear way to understand which it is. Uh, I think probably it's floating in heaven, but it's probably close to the new earth. So it's somewhere there, but we know it's a real place. It's a real city, and John is seeing it. It's coming down out of heaven, end of verse 10, from God. But why is it a beautiful city? Before we get to any descriptions, before we get to any aspect of the, the beautiful stones, the street of gold, anything like that, verse 11 tells us that this city has the glory of God and her brilliance from the glory of God, looks like this very costly stone. So it's all founded in the glory of God. The glory of the new Jerusalem is the glory of God shining forth. Literally in Greek, that word having, my Bible says having in verse 11, having the glory of God, that Greek word is the Greek word echo. You could translate it shining or uh, re re responding. There's brilliant, resplendent glory as it's being shown from God out. It kind of echoes into the world. It's a reverberating beauty. It's a reverberating brilliance. Some of your translations might actually translate it that way, shining the glory of God. They just want it to not owning, not having, but shining brilliantly the glory of God. It's shining brilliance. That Greek word for brilliance, it's where we get the word phosphate from. Here it's the word foster, but it comes from a word phosphate, which phosphate, you could ask my son how... Uh, you know, lightning bugs, fireflies, how they glow. They glow using this, this phosphate, this phosphorescent 
material, this chemical, beauty, beautiful chemical reaction. I don't know how it works. My son watches Wildcrats. He knows how it works. But it's that glowing beauty. It's a brilliance that's glowing, that's shining. There's beauty to this city, but the beauty to the city is a covenant beauty and a radiant beauty not intrinsic to its people. We are not beautiful on our own. This is a glory that's emanating from us, through us, because of God. It's very interesting. You can just write this down. Actually, we'll have time. Turn, turn to uh, Ezekiel chapter 48. Ezekiel chapter 48. You remember we looked at this passage with the millennial temple, the millennial kingdom temple. The dimensions of the millennial kingdom temple and the, the dimensions of the millennial kingdom city, the new Jerusalem in that millennial kingdom city, the, the city of Jerusalem, very, very similar to the dimensions that we see in Revelation as far as the, the 12 tribes stacked on different sides of the city. The new Jerusalem one is different than this one in Ezekiel 48, but it has a similar flavor. And in Ezekiel 48, if you go to the very, very end, there's dimensions, there's tribes, there's measurements, there's all these different things that are given about the city. Very similar. It's very comparable to Revelation 21. It's talking about a different city because it's talking about the Jerusalem of the Millennial Kingdom, whereas Revelation 21 is talking about the Jerusalem after the Millennial Kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. But the foundation of the glory is the same. Go to the last verse in Ezekiel 48. It's the last verse of the book. The city shall be 18,000 cubits round about, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is here. The glory of God is shining through this city because God is there. That's the same exact reality of Revelation 21. The new Jerusalem is shining in brilliance and glory because God is present there. God himself is dwelling with man. Back to Revelation 21. Not only, number one, do we see the glory of this city, we also see, number two, the grandeur of this city. We see the grandeur. We see the glory, which isn't intrinsic to us. It's the glory that radiates from God. And then we also see the grandeur of this city. This is verses 12 through 14. 12 through 14, the grandeur of this city. There are 12 different gates. Verse 12, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates. 12 different gates. So if you can picture... Uh, this is, ultimately, we're going to find out this is a cube. This is just a beautiful cubed square with this beautiful symmetry on all different sides. It's equidistant in every single way. So there are three different gates on each side. And the gates, we're going to find out, go from the very bottom of the city all the way to the top. So it's this massive gate that reaches all the way to the top. And there's a foundation under each gate, and there's a name written on the top of each gate. So if you can picture in your mind... A wall, just look at a wall, and a very long gate, long gate, long gate, three gates that you can enter into this enormous, massive gate, three on each side, going from the bottom to the top, on each different side. These gates are massive. We're told that there are three on, uh, verse 13, three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. So the very fact that we still have our dimensions of north, south, east, and west tells us again, like we talked about last week, that the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem are more similar to this world and this reality than we tend to think. It's not some nebulous place. It has concrete, specified dimensions. Go back up to verse 12. It has 12 different gates. And at the gates, there's 12 angels. It's 12 angels. What are they doing? Why do we have 12 angels standing at the door of each gate? 
they're guarding the door. They're guarding the gate. This is a demonstration of the eternal security of the believer. Nothing can come into these gates and pluck you out. Nothing can come into the city and take you away. There's no threat to your salvation when you are in the new Jerusalem. There's no threat to your satisfaction. No temptation can go through those gates to tempt you and lure you away. You are secure. Your hope is guarded. Your assurance is finally complete. And there's never going to be a threat whatsoever to your salvation or your satisfaction. Similar to the Garden of Eden. You remember when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, when they sinned, they were kicked out of the garden and an angel stood with that, uh, that sword, that flaming sword that was spinning to guard Eden. You cannot come back into paradise. You've been kicked out for good. Here in this text, we see you've been welcomed back into paradise and nothing outside of this paradise that could threaten it will ever enter. You're safe. You're safe. You don't have to lock your doors at night. You're safe. Notice there are gates on all sides of this cube. That's not how you lay out a city if you want to protect that city. You put the gates in front and you put a moat around it. You make sure that there's heavy defenses in the front to make sure as somebody attacks, they can only attack to try and get through that front way. And they'd be very, very foolish to try and attack from behind because we don't have a gate. We don't have an entrance. It's heavily guarded. It's this huge wall. Not so here in the New Jerusalem. In the New Jerusalem, this beautiful city has no need to be protected. So all the way around it, all of the gates are wide open. We see the redeemed walking in and out. It's a beautiful, safe location. No side needing to be protected. No backside that you need to defend. Just beautiful access. The exact same access on every single side from every single direction. Verse 12 has a very interesting little turn. It has a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates are 12 angels, and names are written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Question is, who is the them? Are the names written on the angels, or are the names written on the gates? And though I think it would be really funny to see like huge bouncer angels with their you know, uh, arms tatted up with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, just standing at the gate like, you can't get in. I think that would be a fun image. The word is pointing back to the gates. The gates are the ones that have the names written. So the angels aren't tatted up. It's the gates that are. On the gates, 12 tribes of Israel, and they're written above the gate. They're written on it, above it. This is exactly described for us in Ezekiel 48. Ezekiel 48 even tells us the layout of the 12 tribes. On the north, going east to west, you have Levi, Judah, and Reuben. On the east side, going from north to south, you have Joseph, Benjamin, Dan. On the west side, going from north to south, you have Naphtali, Asher, and Gad. And on the south side, going from east to west, you have Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulun. So again, picture in your mind just one side. Picture one wall. We have one wall, three gates going all the way from the very top to the very bottom. And at the very top, you have a name that's written. And that name is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The city here in Revelation 21, different, much bigger than the one in Ezekiel 48. So maybe they're the same uh, layout of the different 12 tribes, maybe different, but we do know that they are all present. They're all there. The 12 tribes are there. It's also interesting to note, this is the exact same way that the tribes, the 12 tribes were supposed to be laid out in Numbers chapter two with the tabernacle. Remember, they were given the tabernacle. This is where God dwells and you get to sit around it. 
Three tribes on the north, three on the south, three on the east, three on the west. You surround it. And so here, surrounding on top of all of these gates are the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the land. So uh, under each gate, so again, picture in your mind a wall. You have three gates going from the top, three massive doors going from the top to the very bottom. On the top is a name of every single uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. On the bottom is a foundation stone with the name of every one of the 12 apostles. So underneath each gate, it's not like there's 12 different levels. Some people say that this is a pyramid. I don't think it's a pyramid. I think it's a cube. And therefore, I think it's underneath each gate that goes from top to bottom, there's a foundation. And that foundation has a name written. So no matter how you look at this city, no matter which way you look at it, you're going to see three gates with three angels standing at each gate with a name above each gate corresponding to a name of the 12 tribes of Israel with a name below each gate corresponding to a name of the 12 apostles, which automatically we would go to which of the 12 apostles are here because Judas is most likely not here. I could probably do a money back guarantee on that one. So is it going to be Matthias? We, we studied that, right? We, we studied Matthias jumping into the 12 apostles in Acts chapter 1 at the end. They chose him by lot, which they never did it again because the Holy Spirit came after that last choosing by lot. Some people say it's Matthias because he was brought in. God's the one that orchestrates every lot that falls into the lap of the person casting it. So it's Matthias. Some would say there's a theory out there that says they shouldn't have cast lots. They should have waited because God was going to provide the apostle Paul as that 12th apostle. And they should have waited for him. So some say it's Paul. It's Paul the apostle. I don't know. I don't have an answer. I don't think the Bible has an answer. So we'll find out when we get there, okay? We, we'll find out together. Here's what we do know. The 12 apostles are the foundation under each gate. And that corresponds to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that tells us the apostles are the foundation of the church. So you have the 12 tribes that are above and the 12 apostles that are below as the foundation. Now, here's what we need to take special note of. Remember, there's a theological system that would say, Old Testament Israel rejected their Messiah and therefore God has moved away from them, has now started a program with the church and has completely abandoned the promises that he made such that the, the uh, people of God, Old Testament Israel, the Jews are no longer a people of God and therefore the church is the only people of God. We are the only people of God and the church in essence replaces Israel. I know that our all-millennial brothers and sisters wouldn't like that term replaces, but functionally it ends up feeling like ethnic Israel doesn't really matter. Though 144,000, though it's ethnic Israel in Revelation, they wouldn't take it that way. Now, here's why I want to bring that up. If truly Old Testament Israel were enveloped into the church, as replacement theology or covenant theology would say, if they're completely enveloped into the church and we are one people group without any distinction between Jew and Gentile, between church and God's people of uh, Jewish ethnicity, then we'd have 24 different gates or 12 different gates with just 24 different names around them. There would not be a distinction. There would not be a break. Why in the eternal state do we have, we've got uh, Jewish people, the 12 tribes of the Old Testament Israelite up above, and we have apostles below. Why is there that distinction? And I believe that distinction is there because God is still working with his people. They are still his chosen people, Romans 9 through 11. So therefore, though Israel and the church are 
distinct, there are similarities. They're on top and on bottom of these gates. But though there's similarities, there is clear distinction because they are identified not as one people group with 24 different names or even 24 different gates that all have the same access and entrance. No, it's one tribe, one apostle on top and on bottom of each gate. There's a reason why God did it this way. Twelve tribes functioned to prepare the world for the Messiah. They didn't do it perfectly, but they were preparing the way. And they will be remembered for that preparation for all of eternity. God did not abandon his promises to Israel. But it isn't just the Old Testament saints, it's the New Testament ones as well. The apostles took the message of God to the ends of the earth as we're studying the book of Acts. They will be remembered as the foundation of the church. Old Testament Israel brought the Messiah in, and the New Testament apostles took that message of the Messiah to the world, and so we have the top and the bottom of each gate. We have the glory of the city. Number two, we have the grandeur of the city. Number three, we have the measurements of the city. We have the measurements of the city. This is verses 15 through 17. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. I just, I love this description. Those of you who have ever done any work around your house needing a tape measure, you know that that is the job that you can give to your kids, right? There are a lot of other jobs when you're doing projects around your house that you have to say, you have to watch. You can't do this, just watch me. But that tape measure, here you go, have it, beat it up. I don't care, do whatever you want with it. It's little metal. Sometimes it gets those little bends in it, but you're totally fine. Grab it, run it to the other side. Sometimes they pull, you know, yank me too far because I have a small tape measure. Tape measure is destructible, dispensable. You can get another one, totally fine. (laughs) The tape measure in heaven is made out of gold. It'd be like if I took a tape measure, let's say I wanted to measure this pulpit and I took a tape measure and it just had diamonds all over it. Just a tape measure filled with bling. And you open it up and you go, this, th- these don't seem to go together. Tape measure, you throw it into the toolbox, it's all dirty, it's gross. And it has diamonds on it. I love this angel. I just, I want to know how these conversations take place. If he just smiles and goes, I've got a measuring rod. Look at this beautiful golden measuring rod. <laughs> and he measures. It's this enormous golden reed. The, the lowest of lowly tools in the New Jerusalem is made out of solid gold. So he measures the city. Verse 16, the city is laid out as a square, so its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. My Bible says 1,500 miles. The actual Greek is 12,000 stadia. Uh, stadia, we, we don't know. Stadia is a term of measurement. It comes from a stadion. A stadion, we don't exactly know how much a stadion is. The the best guess is it's a little bit over 600 feet. So 12,000 times a little bit over 600 feet equals somewhere around uh, over 1,300 miles. This translation says 1,500. It's probably between 14 to 15. We'll just say 1,500. It's massive. That's all you need to know. It's massive. And its width and its height are equal. So we have a square laid out, length and width are equal, and then we also have width and height are equal. So that's why we say it's a perfect cube. It's massive. It's more than half the size of the United States. One city is more than half the size of the United States. It's the distance from San Francisco to Dallas. This is one giant city. 
And the specific measurements go on. Verse 17, he measured the wall, and the wall is 72 yards according to human measurements. We don't have a description of what the measurement is. It's 72 yards of what? So we're guessing, since we already have the height and the length, we're guessing the width. So 72 yards wide. That's how wide the walls are. Very, very thick walls. But at the bottom of verse 17, it says, according to human measurements, which also are angelic measurements. This means that a yard is a yard to humans and angels. This means it's literal. A foot is a foot and a mile is a mile. They're not different. There's not supernatural language being used here or mystical language being used here. Human measurements and angelic measurements are the exact same. Meaning, again, the the world to come has very similar uh, dimensions and properties of dimensions as this world. You can just see John struggling to express the vastness of the city, trying to figure out how do I put this down on paper in such a way that you and I would be able to see it and feel the grandeur of it. These walls are see-through walls. Verse 18, the material of the walls like jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. So it's gold, but it's such purified gold that it just has a golden hue to it and you can see through the walls. You can see through them. If you add all of this up, 1,500 miles wide, long, and high, according to these dimensions, it gives you about 2 million square miles, which 2 million square miles can hold a lot of people. One of the questions that people ask about this text is how are all the saints going to fit? It's a massive area, but how are all the saints from the Old Testament, New Testament, and beyond going to fit in this cube? And the answer is they don't really have to because we're going to see them going in and out of this city. We're going to see them on the new earth. We're going to see them in the new heavens. We're going to see them all over the place. So they don't just have to stay in this new Jerusalem cube in this city. It's enormous. doesn't have to fit everyone because the new heavens and the new earth are there and the redeemed, as we'll see in the future weeks, are coming in and out of the city. By the way, there is only one other cube that's mentioned in the entire Bible. You guys remember where it is? It's only one other cube that's mentioned in the entire Bible. It's a much smaller cube. It's not 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. It's 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. It's in the Holy of Holies. It's the holiest place. And I don't think that there is some sense where, ooh, this is lucky, how cool that the New Jerusalem is a cube just like that. No, this was absolutely designed by God to show us what was that cube all about. That Holy of Holies, that place that the high priest could only enter once a year, and even that with fear and trepidation because they could die if they have any form of sin on them. If they have any form of sin in their heart, they would die. We have that uh, story of um, high priests having a rope wrapped around their ankle, tied around their ankle, so that if they died, if they, uh, people, if the priests outside heard a, a big thud, they would pull them out. Why here? Why a, a cube? Why is God setting up the New Jerusalem that way? Because he wants us to know his presence dwelt in a temporary way and also a, a, an aloof way, a far-off way in the Old Testament. You couldn't get near him. You and I definitely couldn't. One High priests once a year could get into the presence of God, but very uh, in a very fearful way, in a very uh, not beautiful fellowship, intimate kind of a way. And here, 
God says, I want to dwell with you, and you get to be here, and you get to hang out with me, and it is my presence without any fear, without any uh, chance of sin being something that would remove you from my presence. No, sin is done away with, and we can have beautiful fellowship, intimate fellowship together. We have an amazing foretaste with the Holy of Holies of what God wants to do in the new Jerusalem. He wants to dwell with you. So we've seen the glory, the grandeur, the measurements, and now the materials. Number four, the materials of the city. The materials of the city, this is verses 18 through the rest of the passage, 18 through 21. The materials of the city, the materials used to construct the new Jerusalem. The walls are jasper, which is a very precious stone. The stones are, again, John's way of trying to grasp at straws. They're like this, but it doesn't have to exactly be that. And gemstones today are a little different than gemstones back then as far as their name and their color might be. Back then, the name came from a region not necessarily dependent on the color. So these are a little bit different than the kinds of stones, the gemstones that we would see. They're precious stones. They're beautiful. Uh, Jasper, it's clear. It normally has a a reddish, goldish hue to it. But the more pure it is, the less it would shine that that color. And so this is pure because the walls are made out of jasper, and you can see right through them. Sapphire, it's blue in color. Chalcedony is uh, from Chalcedon in Turkey, and it's a beautiful bright blue. If you want to know what Chalcedony looks like, just think Elsa from Frozen. Like, that's Chalcedony. Like, that beautiful, brilliant blue shining forth. Emerald is green. Sardonyx is a red and white. Sardius is a a deep red. We saw that back in chapter 2 and 3. Chrysolite is a, a yellowish gold. Beryl is a dark green. Topaz is a lime green that's very, very transparent. Chrysoprase is a lighter green. Jacinth is a a violet color. And amethyst is a deep, deep purple. So here's all of those stones together. Here's what John is seeing. He's seeing an explosion of color and brilliance, such that he can't even fully describe it. It's like this, but it's not exactly that. And again, there are 12 stones that take us all the way back to the 12 stones in the Old Testament that were on the breastplate of the high priest. 12 stones, one each representing Old Testament tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. And the whole point of that was as the high priest is going into the presence of God and he wears this breastplate with 12 different stones on it, it's a reminder these stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel are near to the heart of God. He loves them. He wants to be close to them. And so the high priest is bringing them, as it were, into the presence of God. So to here, the entire city is a reminder that we are near to God's heart, that we, God desires to dwell with us. He wants relationship with us. And his glory is radiating through that. We should be amazed that we're as unworthy as we are, that we are here, that we can be in this location, that we can be here, raised to this place of honor. And should drive us to wonder. There are definitely questions that come from this text that we're not quite sure what what it's going to be. But that wonder should drive us to worship. And it should fill us with a sense of determination and just a, a, a profound resolve. I want to be here. I want to do whatever it takes to get here. And live today in light of knowing that there is a day coming when you and I can be there. And some of us, if if we choose to reject Jesus, if you choose to pay for your own sins yourself, then you won't be here. It should 
fill us with a sense of worship and wonder. We see in verse 21, after all of these gemstones, the 12 gates are like 12 pearls. Each one of the gates is a single pearl. How does that work? I don't know. I have no idea. It has to be massive pearl. Maybe it opens this way, opens this way. I don't know, cut in half. I have no idea. Don't, don't know. It's okay that we don't know. Again, it should lead us to wonder, and wonder should lead us to worship. But here's what we do know. And I wonder if this is maybe why there is a pearl on every gate. You know how pearls are made, right? Pearls are made through pressure and through taking something that's disgusting and turning it into something that's glorious and beautiful. There's that pressure. There's that suffering, if you want to use that word, of of all of these disgusting things that are molded together and made in this beautiful pearl. I wonder if pearls are at the gate, literally the gates themselves, to remind us that the only reason we have any access to get into this city is through the suffering of our Savior, through the salvation that he brought about by taking our sin, doing away with it, and producing salvation even through it. The streets are made out of gold. End of verse 21. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So this isn't even 24 karat gold. This is 100% pure gold. So it has a, a tint of gold to it, but it's transparent. You can see through it. And again, not only do we have a golden tape measure, we have streets made out of gold. So what we're going to walk on, what we would just not even think about, there's a crack in the asphalt, we need to repair it, nobody really cares, we can just drive over it. That's the, the, the streets in the city of this new Jerusalem are made out of gold. They're made out of something that is so precious to us now, but then that's going to be what the streets are made out of. Heaven's going to be beautiful. Heaven's beautiful not just because of the elimination of sin, but it's beautiful because of the addition of these glorious realities. The glory of this city, the grandeur of the city, the measurements of the city, and the materials used. So, we see the new Jerusalem. This is going to be our home. I know that a few of you have purchased houses recently, or maybe you're shopping for one. I know a few of you are looking around for one. When you're looking for a house, you ask questions like, what's the neighborhood like? Is there a good view you're trying to find? Is there a good view? Or is there a a train that goes right by and shakes the house every so often? What's the crime rate like? Is it a noisy neighborhood? Just think about John asking those questions of his realtor angel here. This is going to be my future home. I have some questions, Mr. Angel. What's the neighborhood like? What's the neighborhood like? Well, it's beautiful. You got new heavens above you, you got new earth below you, and you have no sin whatsoever. Is there a good view? Come into the city. Come into the city. I'll show you the view. You can see, not through the gate, but literally through the walls, you can see the glory of God outside of this city. What's the crime rate like? I can introduce you to every single angel bouncer if you want me to. No crime gets in, no crime, no, no temptation possible. You're going to be safe and secure. No crime, period. Is it a noisy neighborhood? Those of you who have been to my house know that that happens often. There's noise. We've, we've had some fun Bible studies where we're competing with some parties and some noise. So for me, I want the quietest neighborhood in the world, right? I just want quiet. I want peace and quiet. I don't want any noise. And yet, John, if you were to ask Mr. Realtor Angel, 
What's the neighborhood like? Is it noisy? I think the angel smiles from ear to ear. It's the noisiest neighborhood you've ever been to. And I go, well, then I don't want to move there. But John sees the noise is all about the worship of God. It's a noise that once you hear it, you're going to say, oh, I want in. I want a part of that. I want to delight in God the way that this city is delighting in God. So yes, it's a noisy neighborhood. It's the noisiest neighborhood in the entire universe. And you and I are glad that it is. But here's the conclusion. We look at these aspects of this city. We're undone by it. We see it and we know that it's going to be beautiful and glorious beyond our wildest comprehension. But the ultimate reality of why heaven is heaven is because Jesus is there. Go back to verse 11. This city has the glory of God. No God being there. No glory being there. No beauty being there. Going back to where we began, Jonathan Edwards said, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. If God's not there, our souls can't be satisfied. Despite all the beauty of this city, if it's only those beautiful aspects of material or construction, then it won't be satisfying. Edwards continues, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper and only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here, better than fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These all are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. So my question to you this morning is, when you think of heaven and why you want to go there and why it's going to be beautiful and why it's going to be amazing, is God the fundamental and uh, ultimately only reason why you believe it's going to be amazing? Do you view God as the greatest good, not the streets of gold? Do you view God as the greatest good, not you know, a, a lack of temptation being possible? Do you view God as the greatest good? John Piper says it this way in his amazing book, God is the Gospel, chapter one, he says this, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends that you ever had on earth and all the food that you ever liked and all the leisure activities that you've ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you've ever seen and all the physical pleasure that you've ever tasted and no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? You have, if you think of heaven as this place where you have all of these beautiful realities and Jesus is in there, could you still be satisfied? I think many Christians, quote unquote, think that heaven's going to be amazing because of those things alone, without a love for and satisfaction and delight in Jesus. But to think that way, to think heaven's going to be amazing, but not because of Jesus, is like thinking about getting married and going on your honeymoon and wanting to only be by yourself on your honeymoon. Uh, we get engaged, we look forward to getting married, and then once we're married and the stress of planning that day is gone and everything finally has culmination and we are married and we get to be together and we get to be alone and we get to enjoy each other, the whole purpose of the engagement and the wedding and that day and even going to the honeymoon is just to be together. How weird would it be 
If you're you know, vacationing somewhere and you see some guy sitting there and you say, hey, what are you doing here? And he goes, I'm on my honeymoon. You go, oh, man, I remember honeymoon. That's amazing. I'm so excited for you. Where's your wife? And he goes, I don't know. She's back home. Wait, wait, wait. You're on your honeymoon without your wife. Yeah, and it's amazing. Right? We would all go, well, that marriage isn't going to last. Like something's <laughs> wrong right off the beginning. If you desire heaven because of everything that it can afford you, and all those things are beautiful, but like Jonathan Edwards says, all of those gifts are not the substance, they're the shadows. Why do you want to go to heaven? Piper continues, the question for Christian leaders is this, do we preach and teach and lead in such a way that people are prepared to hear that question and answer it with a resounding no? How do we understand the gospel and the love of God? Have we shifted with the world from God's love as the gift of himself to God's love as the gift of a mirror in which we would like to see what we want to see? Have we presented the gospel in such a way that the gift of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is marginal rather than central and ultimate? Can we really say that our people are being prepared for heaven where Christ himself is, not his gifts mainly, but where Christ himself will be the supreme pleasure? And if our people are unfit for that, will they even go there? Is not the faith that takes us to heaven the foretaste of the feast of Christ here on earth? J.C. Rao once preached a sermon called Christ is All based on uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. And in it, he said this, Alas, how little fit for heaven are many who talk of going to heaven when they die, while they manifestly have no saving faith and no real acquaintance with God. You give Christ no honor here. You have no communion with him here. You do not love him here. Alas, what could you love in heaven? It's not going to be a place for you. Its joys will be no joys for you. Its happiness would be a happiness into which you couldn't enter. Its employments would be a weariness and a burden to your heart. So repent and change before it's too late. So is Jesus the delight of your heart now? I know that for all of us, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you would say, he's not always, but I want him to be. That's where, that's where the fight of the Christian life is, where we're saying, I know intellectually that he is the all-satisfying source. And if I truly functionally live that out, I would never sin ever again. But I'm fighting my sin. And that's why we love the idea of heaven, because one day I will finally be enraptured in a delight for Jesus and of all that he is for me that will never be taken away. It will never diminish. It will only grow. It will get bigger and better. But in order for us to enjoy that day, we have to live this day delighting and fighting to delight in Christ. Psalm 16, verse 5, the Lord is my portion He's the portion of my inheritance and he's my cup. He's everything I want. Psalm 70 verse four, let all who seek you rejoice and be glad and let those who love your salvation, listen to this, let those who love your salvation, that's a gift, that's not the main reason our hearts are satisfied. Let those who love your salvation continually say, let God be magnified, not let salvation be magnified. I love salvation, but only so much as it's a window into me getting more of God. Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants for the waters, so my soul pants for you. I, I long for you. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says he prefers to be absent from the body because he wants to be at home with Jesus. So home is not a place of no more sorrow. Home is not ultimately a place of no more tears or no more death. Home is ultimately a place where Christ is. And I want to be with Christ. That's Philippians 1.23. Paul writes, I'm hard pressed. He's in prison. He thinks this could potentially lead to my execution. And he says, I'm hard pressed because I have a desire 
to be here to serve the church, but I have a desire, verse 23, to depart and to be with Christ because that's very much better than staying here. So what, what is your greatest delight, your greatest hope in why heaven's going to be satisfying? John Milton said, Thy presence makes our paradise, and where thou art is heaven. Samuel Rutherford, an old Puritan pastor, said, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be hell. And if I could be in hell and still have thee, it would be heaven for me, because thou art all the heaven that I want. Martin Luther said, I'd rather be in hell with Christ than be in heaven without him. And if you're here this morning and you say, I don't know how I feel about that. I had a conversation with somebody, a student recently. Um, he was so honest and open and just said, sounds like that's going to be boring. It's going to be boring to just delight in Jesus over and over and over and over and over again. And I was able to say, let me, let me help you with why it's not going to be. Finally, we will fully rejoice in Jesus the way we were meant to without any sin standing in the way. We will delight in him and keep on delighting him. But since he's infinite, there's no way that our delight can fully be satisfied of saying, I know everything there is to know. So we're going to constantly be knowing more, learning more. He's going to be constantly opening our mind up to, to perceive and to learn and to know more and to grow in our delight pulling back all those different layers of who he is so that we get delight after delight after delight after delight. There's always going to be something there to exhilarate and thrill our hearts. And in heaven, there's never going to be a break from that. There's never going to be a pause on delighting in God. And if you, as you're getting close to feeling like I might need a break in heaven, right? I might need a break because I'm just getting delight after delight after delight. God's going to open your abilities, your mental capacities, your soul. This is why we have a glorified body, a glorified mind, a glorified ability to be able to house the, the infinite pleasures of who Jesus is. That, that moment that we might think, I can't take any more of this. If I learn one more new thing about God or see one more new thing about God, I'm just going to explode. It's in that moment where God's going to say, let me enlarge in your understanding. Let me enlarge in your soul, enlarge in your heart, give you an ability to be able to house the delight so that you won't explode. And you're never going to get a break. We get uh, gift cards to go eat. My wife and I do go on a date night. Many of you have given us gift cards. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. One of the classic gift cards that I feel like everyone has given at some point in their life is a Cheesecake Factory gift card, right? My wife and I go to Cheesecake Factory, and pretty much just for the bread. The bread there is incredible. <laughs> and I, I always tell my wife, if I was a billionaire, which I will never be, but if I was a billionaire, I would want just, it's like a scene in a movie to me where I show up and I sit down and I say, hi, my name is Patrick. I will give you the biggest tip that you've ever gotten in your entire life. If that brown bread with the little pieces of oat on top of it is always sitting on my table, always, not a second of that brown bread not being here. When the waiter comes by and says, would you like some more bread? Uh, you failed, right? It needs to be there always. And I will write you the fattest tip you've ever seen. It's like my dream. In heaven, it's like God being the waiter to serve us in those moments says, here's more delight. Here's more delight. Here's more delight. And there's never going to be a time where we will ever say, 
Could I get some more? He's always there to say, I want to satisfy you. I want to satisfy you. Jonathan Edwards says, as we increase in the knowledge of God and the works of God, we will see more of his excellency and the more of his excellency we see, we will love him more. And the more that we love him, the more delight and happiness we will have in him. So if that's true of that day, then let's turn our eyes upon Jesus this day and say, I want to delight in who you are now so that that day, the reality of delighting you in you will be everything that I've always hoped for. Do you delight in Jesus? If you do, please know, brother and sister, you will delight in him fully, finally, satisfyingly in heaven. And if you don't delight in Jesus, I don't want you to leave until you know why we think Jesus is the most amazing, satisfying delight in the entire universe. That's the beauty of the gospel, and we'd love to share Christ with you this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing kindness towards us in Jesus and showing us a revelation of this city, but even more than just the reality of this city, to see that the reality comes from, the glory comes from you. Not from the materials, not from the size, but from you. And so we want to, even this morning, we want to press through the materials, press through the, the size to be enraptured by you and your glory now. We get a foretaste of it now, which will propel us into a greater delight then. Help us even now as we sing to delight in you, our Savior, and our joy. We pray it in your name. Amen.